If you're an executive, entrepreneur, seasoned investor, or just a student of the game, you'll love The Great Fail, Adweek's Entrepreneurship Podcast of the Year, a show that artfully uncovers some of the biggest fails in business history and how it might have been prevented. The Great Fail is entertaining, informative, and told through a true crime narrative in under 30 minutes that keeps you at the edge of your seats. So check out The Great Fail wherever you get your podcast. We actually use Scrib in our home. Do you really love your sleep number bed? And we do. Busy has been in my fridge also. Let's Creator marketing. Unlike more conventional advertising campaigns, creator marketing unlocks new opportunities for advertisers to leverage the authentic, proven, and recognizable voice and talent of a content creator to spike brand recognition and engage customers more efficiently and effectively. As the marketing industry rushes to adapt to ever-changing privacy standards and third-party data becomes a thing of the past, creator marketing may be the silver bullet needed to future-proof your brand strategy. Creators not only hold the key to their audience insights because they interact with them daily, but because they also have authenticated data on demographics, impressions, and engagement metrics. I'm Lindsay Smith. And I'm Nate Spill. And in this episode of On the Mic with Ad Results Media, we are joined by Ad Results Media's Vice President of Media, Gretchen Smith, to discuss the creator economy and moving toward a future without third-party data. All right, Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us on On the Mic today. I wanted to start off a little bit talking about cookies and third-party data in general. Let's talk about how this data has traditionally been used and how it's changing overall. Well, what year would you like me to start, Lindsay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh, I think, I think uh, the dot-com era was the very beginning of how we could start thinking about ways to categorize the screens we all use into marketable abilities and opportunities. But um, within the past, you know, five or six years with the rise of more and more browsers, you know, enhancing and enriching cookies with different things like device graphs and even the introduction and hyper usage of the Facebooks, Instagrams of the world. Gosh, there's tons of different ways that the internet and technology is able to stitch things together and say, this is who you are. I think you look like this. You might look like this, but we're going to take a chance on it, right? Cookies realistically rely the best on an internet browser. That's why they break sometimes on your mobile phone and your mobile apps. But they contain a lot of rich information about where you visited. They might guess your age, your income based on what you've done. There's a lot of different ways that they're making educated guesses on who you are. And in certain permissions, they will sell them to companies that will market to you later on. So that's third-party data, but what what exactly is changing now with cookies going forward? I guess I know that there's talks about compliance issues globally. Are, are cookies going away entirely? Are they becoming less important, or or how are we thinking about them looking forward? Uh, it's a great question. There was just an announcement that Google pushed back what we're calling the cookie apocalypse to 2024. So marketers everywhere were rejoicing, consumers probably not so much. But um, the, the first kind of war on cookies happened actually with the release of GDPR uh, around 2018 or so. I don't know the exact year off the top of my head, but that was essentially where Europe passed laws that said that consumers of the internet had the right to be forgotten. They had a right to say, I don't like you having that data. Please get rid of it. Delete this cookie. Erase this cookie. 
a lot of marketers and brands, you know, fought back and said, well, your cookies kind of get cleared every 30 days anyway, but we all know that's not necessarily true. So ultimately what happens is you need to be able to have access to all your data and you have the freedom to say, hey, I don't want to be tracked. You need to forget me. You need to erase my data. That applies to Europe only. It's a little bit more of the Wild West in the States, right? California introduced a similar law, which allows the residents of California to have more control over their privacy rights and the cookies. But rest of America, you know, you probably get this all the time on your browser where it says, hey, like, welcome to this website. Here's how we use cookies. You can accept all or you can leave. Uh, it's not really an opt-in or opt-out process quite like the rest of Europe. So um, there's a lot of changes happening, and it's difficult to say where legislation will go in the United States on how people have a right to their personal data and cookies. But we definitely have some of the more uh, free-flowing opportunities to collect user data and act on it for better or for worse. Right. And so obviously, you know, for advertisers, that data is helping them target their messaging and think about how to optimize their spending. What about first-party data? Like, how are creators in particular using first party data and what are the differences between you know the kind of data that you can get natively within YouTube or any of the other platforms uh, as opposed to something like a cookie yeah I, I love that we're bringing it into the conversation about creators and first party because there really should be no world where a creator or an influencer has access to third party data and changes up their message onto you right that's where we start getting really hairy into the ethics department starts feeling a little bit like seedy and creepy whenever you're looking on your page and getting very personalized ads. A, a creator can get first-party data uh, from the different platforms that they're posting on. So if a creator is posting a YouTube video, they can look at the YouTube analytics of the types of people that viewed and engaged with their content. And the reason they can do that is because if they're logged in to Gmail or their Google account, Part of the terms of service are that by using that service, they can use your data to enrich other types of Google products. Now, there are ways to opt out of it, but I will say, here's one of my spicy takes. Google doesn't make it very easy, right? They're in the business of making money. They have, and they also, to, to their credit, they want to make ads a more relevant experience for you. That's what they pitch it at least. So at that point, the first party data that creators get to use within YouTube, or let's say if TikTok starts to share back analytics and you know data with their creators as well, you know they can see it within TikTok and they get smarter within TikTok. But there's no world where these walled gardens or social creator platforms are saying, "Hey, here's a handful of cookies. You can go do whatever you want with them. Go find them elsewhere. You know, go sign them up for your newsletter right now." I think that the social platforms have done a decent job of preventing that from happening. But, you know, at least marketing wise, we'll see how true that actually is. I think it's interesting because you brought up the idea that so Google makes it difficult to to prevent the tracking. Uh, you know, you have to go through a lot of hoops to stop that. But you've also brought up that, you know, as a consumer, it does lead to ads that are more tailored to you. And it's interesting because I think we tend to demonize Sometimes as a consumer, from a consumer point of view, obviously advertisers, we rely on data, but like consumers like don't track me. But then also we get ads that are served to us that I mean, I know that I've been served ads on social media and on Google that uh, I I did end up going to make a purchase and I did find it more convenient. So I just thought it was an important point that we as a consumer rely on that tracking. I actually... Uh, can speak to that. I got one this morning that got me. I have been on my uh, fall girl. 
I've been all about the uh, fall girl aesthetic. And this morning, I think it was Urban Outfitters got me with their new pumpkin cream perfume. Oh my God. Uh, yes. I got their ad in my Instagram reels or my Instagram stories. And I was like, well, there it is. <laughs> I wonder how uh, Meta has categorized you as like, a fall Halloween aesthetic because I am getting no pumpkins, no Halloween anywhere on my feed. And that's fine. Like I'll dress up like a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader on October 31st and call it a day. That's the most that I get into the Halloween fall aesthetic at all. So that's so funny. It's like a real time example. Oh yeah. They absolutely like as soon as August 1st hit, like I started with the fall aesthetic and they 100% dialed in on that. Well, I wonder how much of that too for marketers, even on social, but even, you know, obviously creator marketing like we do, how much of that is seasonal luck and how much of that is that, oh, we know that Lindsay is going to buy this like right now. We only got to serve it to her two times before she goes to our website and then that's how we minimize our profits. So that's where you can really get down a wormhole with a lot of these. So I'm, I'm kind of curious when creators are working with marketers, are they sharing that first party data with them or how is that relationship working? That's a really great question. They cannot share the data in terms of the individual cookies, the IDs, the emails. That would be very illegal and sketchy. They can share 70% of my viewers are female. And they like to consume this other type of content on YouTube. And they have an estimated income of X, Y, and Z. And the way that they do that is that Google for YouTube is stitching that information together on their creator platform. And they can see that directionally. But they can't see that Gretchen and Lindsay and Nate watch this video. And so Gretchen makes up 33% of the audience. And Gretchen is female and makes this much money. Like, it will never get down to that level because that's where you start losing the, the trust about like, this is about aggregate information sharing, getting smarter directionally versus individual consumer privacy. I don't want somebody, I don't know, especially a creator knowing how much money I make or exactly where I live. Nobody wants that, but it might be helpful if they are trying to market a new type of rug style that's very in. Apparently the new uh, interior design aesthetic is organic modern. I'd never heard about this before creators started talking about it, but you're supposed to use only like natural jute rugs and things like that. Like I would have never bought a jute rug. And so it'd be very creepy if somebody came to me to my door and said, Hey, got your information from this creator's ad you engaged with. Um, you want a coupon for a jute rug? That would be terrifying. But if I get it just in general, as a part of an audience group, I know that I'm not personally individually being targeted. I know that I'm part of like a group of data that different advertisers are trying to reach and it's just by luck. And if I engage with it, I'll get more of it. If I don't engage with it, I will get less of it. So then how are agencies exactly uh, interacting with, I think you've made it really clear that no agency or no, no advertiser is looking at, you know, XYZ person's exact data, but we are seeing a snapshot. At least the creator is seeing a snapshot. How do agencies use that first party data, that aggregate understanding of, you know, a creator's audience when it comes to their their media spend or their messaging? Well, I, I think agencies can certainly try. And I think that they have tried. You know, there's many ways around trying to get the exact user. I know within a couple ad servers, you can get something called log files that will tell you specifically, like, this is a single piece of ID we've identified as a human and here's everything that they did. But there's no way to say that they're Lindsay. Likewise, you can sometimes do that with things like IP addresses, but IP addresses are a little bit more vague, right? If I log on to my work laptop at my co-work downtown Austin, 
everything that I do on that is associated with that cowork. And so, you know, it's a lot harder to stitch me, but boy, they're going to try and say, look at all these actions that came from this IP address and try to market specifically to that. So I just want to make sure that that is clear. Like agencies will try. And ultimately there are working laws in place and also just trying to make, think of how, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world want to not be liable for any privacy mishaps. Like they will put guardrails to make it difficult to use that data unless there's heavy spend involved. How are agencies starting to shift to relying more on first party data now that you know we're talking about creator marketing specifically? You know, you have to think about the first party data is like we know that anybody who follows a creator is opting into it. And they're saying, I want to follow this person because they are marketing something I like. They are a comedian and they make me laugh. They have a similar lifestyle to me. And so whenever you think about first party data, there's nothing being passed back from a creator to an agency that is personally identifiable saying, here's what I said to the audience that follows me. It's my first party audience. And I kind of know what they look like, but I don't get any sort of cookies or data or e-newsletters or things like that out of that. And whatever they do from their promo code in the case of podcasting, you know, if I just have a promo code for my show and my piece of data, anything that comes off of that, assuming there's not a code leak, you know, came from my first party data. And so it's about making that connection with the creator directly and saying that I want to reach your audience with my product versus saying I want to reach mom's 18 plus that I'm going to purchase from an Experian or from a a different kind of blue kai third party source that we don't even necessarily know how it's stitched together. We know every person viewing a creator, either listening to them on their podcast, looking at their Instagram, their YouTube They've opted in to spend time like watching that person in their feed or listening to it on their podcast. And that's where the value is and where it starts to get into like, well, technically it's first party. So I want to shift gears a little bit because depending on who you're talking to or who you're reading, the economy may be heading into a recession. There's a lot of conversation about that. So how can creator marketing help brands during this potential downturn? What I've told almost all of my clients that have thought about either ramping up or bringing down their budgets, it's regardless of how you're going to respond to economic uncertainty, you're going to need a voice at some point. You know what I mean? You're either going to need a voice to talk about what you're changing with your company, how are you going to do it and things like that. And if you're not working with creators during these tough times, you only have access to your own email lists. Like sure, you can buy a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. There's many other ways that you can do traditional marketing to reach people at scale. But if you're trying to get a message out quickly and authentically, you know, there's only so much that talking to your own customers are going to do. Like working with a creator is going to be able to find like-minded people who maybe consider your brand but aren't opted into it. Think about you in a different way. So let's take the example of like a, a new Apple iPhone or something. There's, you know, when recessions happen, consumers might not be as likely to consider doing those frivolous purchases because they say, well, I have an iPhone 12 already. It works fine. I'd love to have the new shiny object, but I, I got to save some cash here and there. Apple emailing everybody talking about the iPhone 13, that's old news. They've been doing that since they created the iPhone to upgrade your iPhone. But having a creator and influencer talk about how using their iPhone 13, or I think they're on 14 now, I don't even know, um, how using their iPhone, the newest model, actually helps them change up their at-home business game. Or that, you know, they're having a, a newborn child and instead of investing in a expensive camera, the camera on the newest iPhone actually had the most clear cut stuff and it helped actually like 
retouch some blemishes or something like that on their own photos that they were insecure about. So by having creators represent your brands, even through tough times, especially where the sales might not happen, it creates relevancy in consumers' brains that might not be there otherwise. And so that's why I really encourage all of the brands out there to think about creator marketing. You don't have to give carte blanche to the creator to say everything that you want, but you will need a platform for your voice in a way that is not traditional and that's unexpected. Speaking of relevancy, um, you know, so Gen Z is obviously like kind of taking the lead on the stage of, of creatordom. And I think a lot of marketers are trying to think about how can they be more relevant to that audience? Do you have any thoughts on, on trends or just advice for advertisers, things that they need to know about when approaching Gen Z? Yeah, I'll start with creators in general. I think that millennials and Gen X are quick to criticize brand partnerships with creators. They think, oh, you know, like this creator endorsing this protein powder or something like they're a sellout or that, well, they're obviously getting paid to it and I don't want to see it. They very much take the attitude of the older generations of, you know, I grew up in what was once a free internet and my ad was a small banner in the corner that I could use an ad blocker to get out of. Now it's disrupting my day. I don't want to see pay promotions or stuff. Gen Z is different. They understand this is part of the job. They understand that creators are going to work with brands as a revenue and income source. They don't have to work a nine to five. They understand that that money that they're getting from brand partnerships is going towards better gear. If they're a travel blogger, it's funding their next trip that to do like mission or volunteer work and things like that. It's going directly into it. So Gen Z is much more open to brand partnerships than millennials and Gen X ever was. So don't be afraid to market to Gen Z and creators. In fact, I was going as far to say, if your target is Gen Z and you're targeting them with 300 by 250 banners, what are you doing? Like <laughs> yeah. you, you need yeah. to be Gen Z and it doesn't have to be on TikTok if you're not ready to dabble in that yet, but it needs to be through the platforms that they're communicating with their peers on. So definitely thinking of that, Gen Z expects brands to have a digital presence. They, they just expect it. If they don't, how are they going to hear about it? They spend more time on screens than any generation before. They grew up with the internet since they were two years old. They were the original iPad kids. And, you know, ultimately there is no world where they engage with a brand that doesn't exist in some form, not only on a digital screen, but also with the creators that are continually producing content about it. So when we talk about creators in a cookie-less age, you know, we're, we're mostly interested in talking about the quantitative gap. So what are some of the more qualitative benefits and how can brands think about creator marketing more holistically? Gosh, that depends on their brand goals. You know, like when you're talking about, let's start with the quantitative gaps. What do you lose with cookies going away? Well, you lose the ability to stitch unknown interactions to individual insights, right? Suddenly your impressions that you bought for a third-party audience are just impressions. They're not, here's what they did later on. You know, we stitched that 30 days later, they had this conversion. It's because of this cookie. You lose all of that. And so with creators, it's in a way almost going back to basics. I remember hearing, you know, in 2017, 2018, that cookies were eventually going to deprecate. And the prediction then was that we were going to go back to the age old marketing of homepage takeovers on the New York Times as our staple versus trying to like Ugh. do. <laughs> I know I'm happy. <laughs> Look, they're, rele- they're relevant in some cases still, but I'm very happy to have made the jump to full time creator marketing. Uh, but yeah, realistically, it. <laughs> Trusting creators for your voice is kind of in a way like going to that back to basics. Like it's knowing that they are going to give a message that makes sense with the website that they represent in the New York Times, but also with their message going out to all their consumers and creators who are good at what they do 
aren't going to take a message that doesn't make any sense for them, you know? So in a way, you know, it's more authentic than just, oh, this company paid to be on the front page of the New York Times. Cool. Check. I'm moving on. Well, uh, it sounds like we're in a good position uh, at ad results to weather any sort of cookie apocalypse. I, I like that term a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 nice, definitely. And it was, it was a big selling point for me to jump into the creator world, just knowing that the only way that podcasting even stitches data together is IP addresses. And a, a lot of clients raise their eyebrows. I'm not going to lie. You know, we have a, a lot of clients at ad results who are very interested in getting heavy into the data and getting more rich consumer insights. And I would say... One out of three of them raise their eyebrows and they're like, you're using an IP address to stitch together an identity. And we say, well, how else would you like to do it? <laughs> you know, because cookies are going to go away and a podcast uses an RSS feed to work. You can't put a cookie text file in the front of an RSS feed. It doesn't work. And then, you know, typically they start, oh, they think about code and it overwhelms them and they move on. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that using using the IP as the identifier can certainly be more sophisticated, but in a way it makes podcasting resilient through times like this that, you know, you're getting down to a household and making still the best educated guests that you can and combining it with other signals to get campaign learnings. Yeah. And I can see how like understanding a household is also it might not be quite as granular as a, a cookie it can be like you were talking about mapping it specific to a specific action but understanding the households you're reaching that's really powerful too yeah it's powerful and to say to hear people think that well reaching a household isn't relevant to me this is what marketers dreamed of in the 90s you know, to get down to the household level of what was happening. Wow. And of course, we got really sophisticated and really creepy with data privacy. And now you're talking about, you know, all the laws and criticisms that come out because of it. So again, I think it's a good thing. I don't think cookies are criminalized, but they certainly have caused a lot of concerns with consumer privacy. It's also kind of fun. If you go to websites, you can look up what cookies guess about you. And, you know, I think that I've done this once a year through all my life changes over the past like 10 or 11 years. Like when I was dirt poor in New York City, sharing a roommate with three theater kids or an apartment with three theater kids, it said that I was like a homeowner and I was making six figures. And I was like, I mean, I wish. How do I like manifest my cookies to be my real life? I don't know. But um, even, I'm going to look after this. It probably says that I'm still in New York City. Like, at the grind. So <laughs> those were the vibes you were putting out though. I, I, you know what, maybe there's something there with the full mood, you know, it's just saying like, we're going to make your cookies look like the way you want to live. <laughs> yeah. This is like a whole new uh, version of the fortune cookie. I like it. <laughs> Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today and um, giving us your insights on creator marketing and how, you know, it's really resilient in the face of the upcoming cookie apocalypse who knows google might uh push it back another couple of years who knows we can't <laughs> yes. predict the future and if we could we'd be a lot more rich than we are right now so <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the episode if you did do us a favor and share it on your social feed of choice and for a limited time click the subscribe button to get the latest episodes sent right to your favorite podcast app Okay, so there's not really a time limit, but what would a show like ours be without a bit of urgency sprinkled on top of the call to action? While you're at it, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, or ideas for future episodes. So feel free to email us directly at onthemic at adresultsmedia.com. On the Mic is hosted by Lindsay Smith and Nate Spell, edited by Jeffrey Stallings, and produced by Ad Results Media. For more information about Ad Results Media, go to adresultsmedia.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We're proud to be a part of the Adweek Podcast Network and the Acast Creator Network. Find more podcasts like this one at adweek.com slash podcasts.